Hi, I'm Sien Xiao. And I'm Sammy Winemaker. We talk to people who have information and tips on how to unlock a better illness experience. The waiting room revolution starts right now. Welcome back to the waiting room revolution. Today, we are welcoming Dr. Mark Levine to the podcast. He is a medical oncologist for breast cancer patients and is an internationally renowned researcher in clinical trials for cancer. And he's led the Regional Cancer Center in Hamilton and was the past chair for the Department of Oncology at McMaster University for many years. He was my old boss and my good friend. Thanks for being on the show today, Mark. It's my my pleasure. Um, You may not say so an hour from now, but um, I'm very excited about being here and being able to share my thoughts with you and Sammy. I know you have listened to season one of the podcast, which was designed for patients and families, really. But we always appreciate hearing what frontline clinicians think of the messages in the waiting revolution. So let's start with your reactions to the podcast so far. You know, my initial response was, oh, like, this is fantastic. This is like, somebody finally gets it. But I've thought more about it. And there, there are a lot of caveats to it. Mm-hmm. So the idea that, and I, you know, that palliative care, supportive care is you only call for help in the, in the last two weeks of life. And nobody knows, you know, people aren't prepared to receive, uh, receive it. And, you know, stepping back and getting patients and families to understand that the culture that they've, that they've been in, in oncology is one of intervention Mm-hmm. And that intervention per se, yeah, is a good thing, but there comes a time where the best intervention is not to intervene. And that doesn't mean your doctor or your nurse or whoever isn't going to care for you anymore, isn't abandoning you, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, I, and I think your, your, your podcast about the importance of understanding yeah. of of where you are in your disease trajectory, a true, true understanding and, 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 and managing that is the context of, of what you're talking about. And it, and it's a very, you know, empowering the patient and the family to, to do that is, a, is very clever and innovative. It's also very scary. Mm-hmm. I'm sure it's very scary for people. One of the reasons why we are very excited to have you on the show is because you've been a frontline clinician, a medical oncologist, treating breast cancer patients for 40 plus years. And we get to pull back the curtain a bit and understand the thinking of a cancer specialist. And plus, you recently retired, and so you can be open and reflective on your career and where the state of medicine is today, but also where it needs to go. So I'm hoping I can ask you to reflect a bit on your many years of practice, and maybe how it has changed from when you started. It's typical of many oncologists that I probably was one of the most aggressive chemotherapists in Canada in the beginning of, you know, in the, in the 80s and 90s. That's kind of, and then over time, I learned about communication. I came to appreciate what's what's important, uh, what's not important. Um, e- e- and and uh, 
I would say in the last couple of years of my practice, people laughed at me because I was the least aggressive. You know, I came full circle, but I prided myself on trying to develop a rapport with the patient and their families, communicate, do the best I could. Um, many of, you know, th those not try not to give fourth and fifth and sixth line chemotherapy, um, not to get angry at the patient when it's, I'm frustrated because basically the cancers, you know, the treatments aren't working. It's not the patient's fault. Um, so those are the, and so I, I, you, you come full circle and I, I see that with most many, many oncologists, they start off, you know, very aggressive and they end up sitting on the REB or becoming palliative care doctors because they've come full, full, full circle in terms of what, what's important, what, what's, what's not. Maybe you can elaborate more on why you think having open communication is so difficult for clinicians. The more I've thought about it is it's very complicated in the sense that, you know, I've had people with metastatic cancer come to see me and I've said to them, you know, your cancer uh, is um, spread. Um, I can't cure this or we can't cure this. The goal is to try to control the cancer to, you know, to, to, to maximize your quality of life for as long as possible. Sometimes the patient doesn't want to hear that and they fire me. <laughs> it's happened. Mm -hmm. What's the matter with this doctor? He can't, he doesn't want to treat me. That's the message they get. And they go, you know, you, the next day you get a, a, a message from the family doctor, please, please find uh, another oncologist for the patient. So th there's also that, you know, that, that it's a lot more, I mean, there, there has to be a, you know, a change in how we think of, you know, medicine and that we don't, we're not all, always interventionalists. And it, it's also the patient's perception of, 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 of us as well. I really appreciate um, your honesty, but I really, I really do. It is so rich to hear someone from your perspective, you know, um, reflecting on your career and the content of the podcast. Um, it's, um, it's a unique opportunity to, to interview someone like you for sure. No, but there are, as you know, there are oncologists who are not comfortable sitting down with the patient and family holding their hand and saying, look, you know, I, I, I this is, this another course of chemo is just going to make you sick. It's going to make your last two weeks miserable. I'm still going to take care of you. Just giving up on the drugs doesn't mean I'm giving up on you. And, and, and there are lots of docs like that. And it's not for me to judge them in any way. And I'm not trying to. Um, um, I, I admire, you know, these oncologists that have huge, huge practices of people with advanced cancer. And I don't see how they actually have the, the fire left in them to continue because it's a really... Uh, you know, it it really consumes you. So, uh, um, but I think we need a new way to deal with this. And one way of it is educating the patients and the families. And I think that's what you're empowering them, which I think is a, you know, the self-management and all that's very trendy these days, but it's a new way of doing this. It's not going to, you know, it's going to, even if it, you know, captures a, 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 a small segment of the population, it's very, it's constructive. You know, it, it's, 
10 percent, 15 percent, 20 percent. It's it's you know, it's we get caught up in all this targeted therapy and all this, you know, high fancy schmancy stuff. And 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 we tend to forget some of just the basics of communication and hand holding. I mean, you know, virtual care, you can't you, you can't see or touch your patient, but it's really important. It, it is so important. You know, you had mentioned something about um, the idea of patients uh, being empowered or activated um, or the the idea of talking about um, the truth and the reality of someone's situation as being scary for the patients and families. Um, do you think it's also scary for the physician? Yes, I do, for several reasons. One one reason, as I said, is we're, we're trained to intervene with, I don't know, medicine, surgery, whatever. We're not, we don't, we don't get the best training in how to intervene with words. Um, and I would say um, it's it's even worse now because the, the the trainees are all fantastic with technology, but ask them to do a history and physical, they can't. Ask them to go and see a look at a patient from ten feet away. A really seasoned clinician will say that patient's depressed. Just I I could when I was practicing I could look at a patient. That's all I needed. Uh, to see, to get a feel for what was going on, a little bit more, talk to them. You know, you know that's so important, and that's gone by the wayside. I mean, my God, this there's really a lot of bad things about this pandemic, but I'm not convinced that virtual care is at. The, you know, they say it's here to stay. It's da 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 da. But the 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 the, the empowering uh, the caregivers. Um, is is going to be is being lost, and and I think, it, in fact, in fact, Sammy, it's those those caregivers who are not comfortable with that's how your question began are not comfortable are threatened by the 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 honesty of being saying I can't do anything more, for, you know I can't intervene. The, the virtual care is they're loving this because it's distancing them more than than the mm -hmm. than make you know increasing the gap and as you know there's no perfect they're, they're, you know actually mac has done some really leading work in the world and try to how do you identify people who are going to become good doctors and it's a crapshoot it's a crapshoot and and you know you you probably you know you identify people who go into med school many of them you know just are not don't have the character the training to be the empathy and and that's um, that's the challenge. And as you say, yeah, the, it's very it's very um, threatening to them. And some of them have had obviously negative family experiences with cancer, uh, chronic end stage renal failure, or you know heart disease where palliation is important. And and it it brings some of that that sort of stuff back. So um, and you know you're 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 you've hit it on the head. I mean. Um, it's much more enticing and, uh, you know, sexy for a young trainee in oncology to learn about targeted therapy, to learn about immunotherapy, uh, SBRT, all these fancy things, 
as opposed to, you know, how, how do I communicate and have that discussion about um, the very difficult discussions, I'm not talking about end of life and, you know, that's difficult, but you know, you a patient comes in with metastatic colon cancer or metastatic breast cancer, you know, the doc knows they aren't going to be here in two years. Well, how do you, how do you um, communicate that compassionately without taking away hope? Very, very difficult. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I, I'm hoping that I would hope that, and I think this is work for all of us is, you know, there are some oncologists, uh, physicians, nurses who, who, who might be threatened by your, the work you're doing because it's an expose, if you will, you know, in some ways. Yeah. And it shouldn't be. It should be a way of, in my view, of no one's trying to be critical. The idea is here's another pathway to follow. Mm -hmm. uh, here's another way to, to change behavior. Here's another way of the context. And I, you know, I, 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 you know, I, there's been a lot of discussion in the oncology literature, as you, as you know, about, I put this in quotes, early integration of palliative care, whatever that is. But, um, and, and it's not the easiest thing to do, but communication is key to it. And if you can't, if you're afraid to talk to the patient about these really difficult situations, um, it, it, it's tough. You're connecting closely to some of the keys we talk about in season one, walking two roads, and helping patients know you can hope for the best and plan for the rest, and that it doesn't mean giving up hope. And that's such an important thing to talk about, even if it feels uncomfortable. You know, I'm curious that um, we really encourage patients and families to invite themselves to the conversation, and in some ways, to declare their informational preferences and their style to their doctors and healthcare team up front. So things like informing them if they're the kind of people who like a lot of information and like to plan ahead or don't want things to be sugar-coated, these are all things that are helpful to know early on, I think. And I wonder, looking back on your clinical encounters, did you have patients and families say that to you? And if they did, would you have been receptive to that? I would say, like, if we're looking at a, if you think about this as a bell curve, what you've described would be one edge, you know, one DV, that, that's, let's say, 10 or 20 percent. That's the, you know, that's a minority. And at the other side is the person who, the, the group that come hell or high water, they're not going to believe you. They want to be cured, you know. And in between, I think, is the average person who, when they're hit by cancer, severe cancer, they're just numb. And there, despite all this stuff about trying to do shared decision making and stuff like that, they're numb. They're waiting for a plan. They're waiting for direction. And 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 it and it they want to be kind of told what to do. And uh, I'm not saying that's right or wrong, but the reality is, those are the most of the kind of people you're 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 dealing with. And if you can uh, bring them, so you have the point I'm trying to make is. You have a chance. The slate is, they're coming to see you. They're, they're just numb. The slate is cleaned. If you can somehow prepare them, you're going to be with them for two or three years through their illness, you know, and you can actually prepare them and build up the rapport so that, you know, um, over the next two or three years, things may not go well. Um, you know, let's have those discussions and let's not be afraid to have those discussions 
that's kind of what I tried to do to sort mm -hmm. of, you know, <laughs> guide the people and help them along so that we could have those discussions. Mm -hmm. um, um, and, and sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't work. I think, you know, the, 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 the kind of person also, you have to be very careful, the kind of person that you described, in fact, who may be coming, saying, coming in saying, you know, I want to know everything. I want to have that discussion. In fact, the truth is they want the very opposite. They don't want to hear anything. You know, they're afraid. And that bravado and that, you know, is, is in fact the opposite of what they want. And that's why I think I'm still coming back to you have to try to develop that rapport with the patient and family. So you, you can have that level of comfort before the last two weeks of life. Um, and if they'll let you, you know, guide them towards that sort of uh, kind of thing you talk about in the, the, the experience you talk about in the podcasts. I, I think, I, I don't have to tell you folks that changing behavior is, and it, I don't care if we're talking about patients or families or physicians or, or not, it's really hard. I think that's one of the hardest things in, in, in not only medicine, but in, in the world is just changing people's behaviors. I mean, and that's what you're trying to do with the podcast. And, um, you know, hopefully, hopefully you will, um, it will help. You know, it's very interesting because from what I can tell, there are really good um, guides out there for clinicians on how to speak uh, to patients uh, more openly and frankly. Um, there are courses you can take. There are books you can read. There are simulated patients, um, people in medical school practice on each other. But I think you hit the nail on the head, actually, uh, a couple of minutes ago when you said something about the timing of it, the prompt. It, it turns out that you can teach doctors how to speak um, beautifully, but then there's still this challenge of when to do it in my practice. It seems to be the biggest challenge. And you know, I, you're, you're absolutely right. Tommy. you know, cause I actually, I remember <laughs> when all this stuff, all this material about early integration of palliative care came out, I actually tried to raise the topic in some discussions with patients who had just developed metastases and sometimes, you know, about goals of care, expectations, and sometimes it worked and sometimes it really backfired. And, and um, no, but I, 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 I agree with what you're saying. And, and uh, I think stimulating the discussion by what you're doing through your podcasts, it would be, you, you know, it's another tact that you tact that you're trying, and it would be very interesting if you could somehow monitor or have examples where, oh, somebody heard your what your your philosophy, if I can call it that, and they actually tried it on their care team, and this is what happened. Um, you know, hopefully, mm -hmm. some of them would be very successful in opening that discussion. Because if you miss the opportunity to integrate some of these discussions earlier, that's when it becomes harder and harder and scarier and scarier as the person edges towards the cliff. 
And then you end up in this situation where you're gulping because you know you have 50 people in the waiting room and some of them are coming in close to the edge and we've missed the trigger to talk about it sooner. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's so uncomfortable. Um, Yeah. And... No, I, I, I agree with you. And, and it's, I don't know, if you if you go back in the history, can I use the term palliative care movement? And maybe it's not the right term. Sure. But, but when you started, okay, palliative care was synonymous with pain control. And it, it's not. It's quite, oh, yeah, pain control is one part of it. But having the discussion is a very important part of it. And I think... That's something we've learned over time, and and mm-hmm. as your as the specialty has evolved, um, but it's it it's not sufficient. Just it, it can't be a specialty. It 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 has to be, um, it has to be uh, what what's practiced throughout by family physicians, oncologists, nurses, stuff like that. The the idea of the cons- consultant and then turning it over to somebody. It works if they know what they're doing, but if they don't, it it's not so good. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you, I I don't know. I'm going on and on, but it's uh, it's a very di- what you're the topic you're tackling is is difficult. There's no right answer, mm-hmm. and it becomes more awkward the longer we avoid it. But you know, I can share with you that uh, most patients do appreciate the invitation to know more. And I think that's where people get held up. Um, there, There's nothing about having to tell someone their prognosis. We don't have to force people to know. But I can tell you that most of the patients I've met really appreciate the invitation to know that we know something. Mm. I know what the next years are going to look like for you, generally speaking. Are you the kind of person who would like to know, or are you the kind of person who would rather not know? It's about sharing that I have information. What do you think of that, Mark? That's you're painting the ideal. To me, um, you know, as I, as I, uh, undoubtedly, that would, um, for that's that's the ideal in my view situation where there's. Uh, the patient is interested there's this free flow back and forth about this very um, complex but difficult subject. You know, like many of the people that come in are just in shell shock, as I keep saying, and they're not ready for it, mm-hmm. even if they got advanced pancreatic cancer mm-hmm. and it's all over the place. It's just, um, uh, and, and in some of those people forcing the discussion sometimes helps but sometimes doesn't help and um yeah yeah to me it's um what you're describing is the ideal um something that a goal um but it's not going to work in in all scenarios and if you use the prompt if you push in that direction and you meet resistance then you know it's you know, it's for another day. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I just don't think it's as black and white, Sam. Mm-hmm. There are certainly patients where that, where that scenario is applicable, but there's others that um, where it just 
you wish it was that simple. And then you you get you go in now into our 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 multicultural society. It you have to you know tailor mm -hmm. um, some of your <laughs> you know, some of your what you do um, to, to um, where the person's ethnic origins are mm -hmm. because you know they have some very uh, interesting views about about from their life experiences. Yeah, you know, sometimes I, you know, I'm going to admit that I have been resentful, you know, at the 11th hour being in someone's home. And this is really how this whole movement started based coming from my resentment, <laughs> not towards you, of course, but generally speaking, I just, there were too many times where I would meet people who were very close to death, um, who told me, you know, I need to get stronger. I need to, my, my doctor told me if I'm not stronger, I won't get more treatment. Or if I don't gain weight, I won't get more treatment. I need to eat more, but I simply can't. I have no appetite. In fact, it's making me feel like I want to throw up. And every time I try to exercise, I just, I collapse because I just can't. And of course, in my mind, I know it's because this is normal. You are dying. Your body is slowing down like nature intended it to. But some people before me have set you up to have false hopes that don't match where you're at in your illness. And I think that's the biggest risk is when we avoid these conversations, hope and reality get mismatched. And Absolutely. Then, you know, I, th I think one of the uh, very upsetting examples of that and that's another we reason I got out was technology. So now, you know, in the cancer center, they have these fancy manchi cyber knives and whatever the hell they're called, these radiation machines that can deliver radiation with precision so that the tissue around can be spared. So you see a lot of SAMI patients with either primary brain tumors or metastases to the brain. So it used to be you'd get one shot of radiation and that was it. You know, you manage the patients with steroids until till the end. Well, now what they're ending, you know, with a person with three or four Mets, they're radiating each Met. And then they do a CAT scan or MRI in three months. And if it's got a little bigger, they'll radiate it more. So this goes on it's not affecting the natural history of the disease. The patient is still going to die of the cancer, but it's creating such a disconnect between the patient's expectations, the whole example of technology and the idea of, you know, docs are really good at intervening, but not dealing with it is, is I think, a, whether it's the surgeon, whether it's whichever phenotype we're talking about, it, it, it really are, are, it's a problem Technology, technology, technology is setting us up for the poor patient is just do totally disconnected from mm -hmm. reality. That should be another chapter. You know, one thing is, um, as I'm listening to you talk, you know, you meet people at such a different point in their illness than I do. Um, and, you know, by the time I meet them, um, I can only plump them up, you know, with the good news of better symptom control or, you know, um, discussion about helping them connect the dots, whatever it is. Um, mm -hmm. 
I usually meet them at a very low point. Um, and we can only move up together, really, so yeah. to speak. Um, but, you know, when I think about my oncology colleagues, I do appreciate, and same with my family medicine colleagues and other specialists, that you journey with patients a lot longer uh, than I do um, in, the, in the current healthcare system. And you often take them from what could be curative to recurrence, metastatic, advanced, end stage. Mm-hmm. And I just really appreciate that um, the relationship that you build with your patients and families makes it that much harder um, to bring them along the journey and have to break the bad news. Uh, that that must be soul wrenching uh, for an oncologist. Yeah. Oh, I guess what I was uh, going to say is like when people have ALS, for example, yeah, um, that comes with a very well known illness pattern and a timeline. But with breast cancer, like you said, there are so many different paths people can go. Um, and, and many women with breast cancer have every right to believe that their breast cancer is curative. So the fact that you meet such a mixed bag, let's just say, with people who may be cured or may not be cured, I can just imagine that taking its toll on someone over a 30 plus year career. Yeah. The the other thing I've seen the way oncology is practiced, not not really um, uh, in 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 Canada so much, but or or like the way you'd see it done in remote communities up north is that basically the cancer center is for you're acting as if I can use the term technicians. You're giving let's say take breast cancer, you're giving the upfront chemotherapy and radiation. Then the patient is, you know, discharged um, to the family physician. And they're followed by the family physician. And then if the cancer comes back, they make they go back to the cancer center. And I mean, that's one way that oncology can be practiced. Unfortunately, I, I family currently with our healthcare system, I don't think family physicians have the time uh, or, or uh, uh, um, some of them might argue, but it, it's, it's not ideal for them to be doing, you know, for, for, for um, patients to be treated uh, at a comprehensive center and then just transferred over. Um, but that some people might feel that's the right way. But right now we've managed to create a huge gap in my view, between family physicians and oncologists. So there's no one to do the palliative care except you. You know what I mean? It's sort of like many family physicians will not take it on, uh, even though they've known the patient for years. So um, who's to say? You know, I, I, I don't know. I mean, you obviously are seeing the, you know, one spectrum. Um, and even within that spe- spectrum, the most difficult cases. So, you, you know, because of your expertise. So it, it's uh, m- many ways to kind of look at this elephant kind of thing. Um, mm-hmm. it, um, yeah, there is this problematic pattern that happens when people are diagnosed with a progressive life-limiting illness, let's say a cancer that's not curable, um, and they're seen more and more and more at 
the cancer center. And you're right, this gap or chasm starts building between the oncologists and the family practice. And it's difficult to know who's on first and who's on second. Who's Mm -hmm. introducing and having these discussions with the patients and families? The oncologist might think it's the family doctor, and the family doctor might think it's the oncologist. And then suddenly, we're not having them. Um, So it is a big problem because, of course, once the patients can't get back to the cancer center, the expectation is is that the family practices uh, suddenly receive them again. So um, one one of the things... Sorry, and and you know that's not happening either because so where does Andy everybody ends up in emerge you know the the lowest common denominator there's very few family doctors that make house calls and 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 uh, you know with the complexity of some of these illnesses you you know the family doctor has the same problem well he's not he or she is not equipped to deal with you know all these different manifestations you know Mark I'm curious. We talked earlier about how patients and families have their own style and should declare that to their healthcare team, like, you know, the kind of person who likes a lot of information. But I also suspect that clinicians have their own styles as well. And they probably have their favorite ways or the patterns of how they approach certain conversations. And I'm wondering if you feel like you were ever changing your style or your pattern and how you would approach a patient conversation depending on the information style of the patient? As Sam said, it really depends on the phase in the illness. So if you're starting at the early, early, uh, you know, early disease yeah. and you're making these decisions of treatment A versus treatment B, you, you spend a lot of time um, giving them a ton of information, even if they don't want it, you know, mm-hmm. you, you go through it. Then, uh, as the disease, if it progresses and comes back, um, you you obviously give options, but you you wait. You also really want prompts from the patient. If the patient says, "Look, uh, you know, I've got, you know, I, I've, you know, I've got my daughter wants is getting married in a year's time. Uh, am I going to make it?" Da 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 da. Then you sit down and you 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 really go through it with them, and you say, mm-hmm. you know. Um, you know, okay. many times I would say, you know, my advice is get married, get the, tell, call your daughter. And if you want, I'll do it. I'll be there with you. Tell them we want to have the wedding in six weeks, you know? Okay. So, so yeah. you, that's a very good way to, I think uh, many people would give you a, 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 a a life event that they're looking forward. They're bargaining with you. Yes, okay. Yes. And you have a chance to communicate the severity of the situation yeah, by right. your, by how you move those yardsticks. If you say, yeah, yeah, you'll be okay. Well, we can manage this for a year from now with well, the cancer shouldn't be, yeah, you, you know, you know, you might have no hair or whatever, but you'll be there for the wedding uh, versus, you know what, let's do it now. Um, that's a nice way of segueing into that discussion. But, you know, I think that's a really another way um, of, you know, expressing your point that one of the triggers to have the discussion is for the patient to come forward and ask you something um, that that does work often, whether it's will I be here next year for my daughter's wedding or 
um, let me have it, I want to know everything, it, it can make it easier for the clinician to go there with them. Yeah. Or, or you know, I, I have uh, one more year to, to work and I'll get my pension or, or should I take my time off now to be with my grandkids? There's lots of, so we're, you know, actually here, we're coming up with a nice, a, a nice little sort of something we, you could put together as, as prompts, as actually concrete strategies mm-hmm. that could be used that are not as sort of earlier in this Congress, in this discussion, we, you know, it was black and white, very, mm-hmm. but these are actually very nice triggers that are gentle mm-hmm. yes. that could get that conversation going. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I like that. I like that. I do too. I, Thanks. We'll we'll take credit for it. <laughs> but I do think people get fixated. I know they ask about the time and that's what we're scared. That's the crystal ball. Like it's hard to know the exact date. Is it 12 weeks? Is it 16? But I, what we often hear is, okay, yeah, put the time aside. The whole of like, what is, what am I going to be expecting um, with basically how, what is the decline going to look like is actually something everybody can prepare for. And I think this is actually more clear, not outside of cancer, but in say, uh, when you're someone going to a nursing home or something or dementia, because there is going to be these losses along the way that are mm, predictable at some point. And therefore, if you don't plan for any of them, you're really caught at the end with like, you know, so overwhelmed. But, but I feel like we, we really shy away from talking about those changes uh, the functional decline piece, the loss of independence and what that's going to look like and how to prepare for that. And that is independent of how much time that could come over five years, that could happen over six weeks, but it's probably going to happen. And I think um, some people really have no idea about that. They will say, I have, I have my, bought my plot. I have my will. I know what songs I'm going to sing. I'm ready for death. And yet they haven't thought of the idea of how am I going to go up the stairs and what happens when I can't go to the bathroom. Oh, it's, it's much worse than that, Sien. So they, they, they have all of that spelled out. And then I would say to them, okay, I, I understand. Uh, uh, and that's good. And I said, uh, well, what, what's going to happen? And the, the wife there and the children are there. I'm going to say, well, what's going to happen when you're at home and you're watching, you know, you're really, you're sick and you stop breathing. And I say to them, I said, what are you going to do? And the husband or wife says, Oh, I'm going to call 911. And I say to them, that's the worst thing you can do because you, you, you're going to, the ambulance people are going to come and they're going to stick a tube in your chest, you know, down your throat. They're going to bring it to emerge. And then they're going to ask you, do you, the family, do you want this person on a machine or not? And so that gets the, into the discussion about what's, you know, what to do, what it's going to be like, how am I going to die? And um, I, I, I've, I'm, and people would commonly say, well, how am I going to die? Because because they're afraid of pain. So I say to them, well, you know, everybody, it's different. But what usually happens, people get weaker and weaker, such that, you know, they can't eventually can't care for themselves. And they have to go to the bathroom with help and even have a bedpan. And maybe they can't eat. And, you know, I go through it. And... Then I said, and people often drift off into a coma and have a peaceful death. And I say to them, you know what? I can guarantee you if, you, if, we, if we work together that I can, you, might not ha- you might have some pain, but you're not going to suffer from pain. Mm-hmm. Um, and that gives, you know, th- those are, that's a discussion about another, you know, another chapter in, the, in the, this is how am I going to die? You, you've referred mm-hmm. to it as a period of disability 
and and uh, obviously you have to make that more less medical um and people when they're ready for that that's a very good discussion because that avoids this crazy business of you know of if you're going to die at home fine be ready you know no do the right things don't do the wrong things and calling 911 is the yeah. is the wrong thing you might um enjoy our last episode uh which is all about what i call the space in between uh in between now and the time you're gone uh you know you can call that dying i call it the space in between like exactly how things unfold over the last year of life that's what we talk about in ep- in episode Nine. Next week. Yeah, and 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 I and I, uh, you know, and I taking us back full circle to how we started. Mm -hmm. You know, I think there's a a lot of um, doctors, oncologists, nurses that aren't comfortable in that space. They just aren't comfortable about talking about it. For we can go into a lot of reasons. there are also many patients who aren't comfortable in that space or, or, or if they're not comfortable in that space, they're at least spaced out. So they're not ready for the conversation, but it, 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 it's, it's, uh, and the question is how you get both parties, the caregiver, the, you know, the physicians and so on and the patients, how do you move them a little bit more so that the gap mm-hmm. is, is smaller. And I think that's a, you know, a really, good way to think about that there's a gap and how do you how do you make the gap as small as possible and and i'm sure there's a lot of other pieces to the gap it's not just doctors and patients you know it's family members it's support care workers all sorts of stuff yeah yeah sure mark if you were able to give one or two pieces of advice to other oncologists to bridge the gaps about everything we've talked about what would that be you know, there's no, there's no, you haven't lost the battle or there's no, no, no skin off your, you know, it's not a bad thing for you to say to the patient, you know, I've given you lots of chemotherapy. I don't have any more tricks, or if I have some tricks, they're not going to work. I want you to be very comfortable in your remaining days. I'll take care of you. I'm not going to give up on you, but I'm not going to give you medication. That's to me. There, there's no harm. That that should be pretty standard. I I think that you know one should um, get to know your patient well enough so that you can have that discussion about goals of care before it's the last two weeks of life and you have to call Sammy in. You know, like okay, you know, you are. How can we manage things so that you know? Those are my two. Uh, 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 and and uh, I guess my third comment is, if it's not going to work, don't do it. Mm-hmm. Don't do it as a substitute for having that discussion. I guess to, to, to shrink it down, the message would be, don't be afraid. Be open with your patients. And yeah. I think that's a nice way to say, don't be afraid. Uh, be open. And probably mm-hmm. the result of all of that is very rewarding for mm-hmm. everybody. Mark, the conversation was awesome. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, this was a delight. I, I thank you so much. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website, waitingroomrevolution.com, 
to listen to our first season about the seven keys and to learn more. The podcast is produced and edited by me, Kayla McMillan. Our theme music is Made Pole by Ketza. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast and help us get the word out.